This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode nine, the quarter ahead, downside debate, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, John Hill, Ben Jeffrey, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Ben Reitzes, Dan Creeder, and Dan Belton from our FIC Macro Strategy team, along with Michael Gregory from BMO Economics, to bring you our thoughts on the looming flashpoints that frame our outlook through year-end. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The main flashpoints on our radar through year-end include the global trade war, European economic and political risks, and monetary policy ammunition problems, in addition to the tensions between the U.S. and China, as well as Iran. Financial markets have been whipsawing on shifting expectations for the largest of these global risks, specifically trade war de-escalation versus escalation and Brexit extension versus hard leave. Ten-year treasuries are almost 30 basis points higher than last week's lows, but still 30 basis points lower than they were following the July FOMC meeting. Both the ECB and the Fed are on the docket in the next week with monetary policy easing fully anticipated. In today's podcast, we explore the current market tensions and the expected impact on each of the markets that we cover. Let's kick it off with Michael Gregory from our economics team. Michael, what is your assessment of the U.S. economy and your outlook for GDP? Well, U.S. economic momentum is ebbing as the global trade war weighs and the impact of last year's tax cuts uh, fade. Now, we look for real GDP growth to slow to about 1.5% by the turn of the year, and that's down from 2% currently. Now, uh, we do look for growth to pick up a bit next year as uh, the economy benefits from current extremely low longer-term interest rates, a couple more Fed rate cuts, and a pickup in government spending owing to the Bipartisan Budget Act. We think the global economy will follow a similar profile given already deployed and planned stimulus measures in many jurisdictions. But of course, this assumes that we get no further escalation of the U.S.-China trade war or a broadening of that war to other jurisdictions. Clearly, the risks are skewed to the downside if either the trade war escalates with China or, in fact, spreads to other areas, or if current trade restrictions in place actually prove to be too burdensome for the U.S. and global economies, particularly through the channels of increased uncertainty and the erosion of confidence. Now, for the downside scenarios to unfold, the transmission mechanism here is very important because we kind of look at what's going on in the economy right now. We've got a kind of tale of two economies. We've got weakness in manufacturing, exports, 
and investment. And that's where you're beginning to see the global trade war really sort of impact the U.S. economy. But in things like services and consumption and to a lesser extent government spending, you still have pretty decent performance. And so that linkage between that weakness and say the manufacturing capex complex to the consumer sector, there are two challenges that goes through. One is by declines in or slower job growth and perhaps starting to see a little bit of that. The other part, of course, weakness in financial markets. And we had a taste of that in the fourth quarter of last year when the uh, the massive decline we had in stocks at the time literally caused consumers to batten down the hatches and we had extremely weak consumer spending. So if we are going to get that weakness, it'll likely be as job growth tails off and more importantly, as we do get the fall off in stock prices. And in that kind of environment, I suspect that will push the Fed and other central banks into an even more aggressive easing tact. Hey, Michael, this is Ian. What do you make of the notion that we've actually started to see the market price into a scenario where we have a fair amount of downside already assumed? And the question then becomes, is the economy actually poised to outperform a relatively dire scenario that seems to be baked into the cake to some extent? I think that's a good point. I mean, I do think the market is is actually thinking that the worst or more negative scenarios will, will likely be the case. And, and that's basically not our base case. And, and, and so we would expect that the market's going to be a little bit surprised by the fact that the, you know, we're not standing on the edge of an abyss here and that things uh, do unfold, not to the point where it deteriorates to the extent I think that's priced in. Yeah. One of the things that we've been contemplating here on this side is how much is the Fed actually actively trying to forward financial conditions expectations? Because to your point, a lot of the scenario that played out in the fourth quarter of 2018 really is that trigger that a number of people in the market are worried about. Not so much that we see the overseas slowdown actually finally start to impact the domestic economy, but rather the fear that that all plays out weighs on risk assets. We see a retracement in equities, spike in equity volatility, which tighten financial conditions, and the Fed then has to do something about that. I do agree that the fact that the the real economy is going to slow down, part of that was baked in both in the global economy and the U.S. economy. But I think it's that channel of of financial markets. And to a lesser extent, I think we also have to kind of look at sort of jobs, because I, I think that is also that important linchpin for consumer confidence. And and if there's one thing that has held in, surprisingly, has been consumer confidence. And I I think it is kind of tentative, though, whether or not that can continue if, in fact, job growth continues even at the slower pace that that we saw in the latest reading for August. You make a great point, Michael. The resilience of consumer confidence has been, frankly, rather surprising. And one of the things when I contemplated is just the correlation between equity prices and consumer confidence. So there's still some implied wealth effect holding up consumer confidence and what that means for the real economy as a whole. Although I would add, if we think about who the core consumers are within the U.S. economy, particularly by age group, it's that 25 to 40-year-old cohort that typically doesn't have a great deal of beneficial ownership from the equity market. And so the fact 
that this big run-up in equities hasn't necessarily translated through to consistently way above trend consumption isn't much of a surprise in that context. I'd also say that there's a structural kind of tension here where if and when we do see this kind of pendulum swing back towards some economic momentum, basically the sky didn't fall with hindsight. Part of that has been predicated on the dovish monetary policy impulse that the Fed has executed over, call it, the past nine, ten months or something like that, going from a hiking cycle within the past year to not only we're not raising rates anymore, but now we're actively beginning to lower them. And one of the things that I think will be extremely interesting is were that scenario to play out, the Fed cuts call it 50-75 cumulative in their mid-cycle adjustment, they then kind of have a flat expectation of policy going forward, all else equal. The question is, if you were to start polling people in that state of the world, is the Fed going to hike again this cycle or are they just kind of delaying further cuts to the downside? That's going to be extremely informative for whether we see a pickup in long rates, in the belly in particular, and uh, frankly, whether this is just extending the cycle or averting a recession entirely in the next few quarters or years. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. You know, when we looked at these mid-cycle adjustments in the past, and, and I think this is where Powell ran into trouble in terms of tripping over the mention of that in the press conference, was that invariably the rates start to go back up again in these uh, mid-cycle adjustments. And I'm not clear that this is necessarily the case. You know, I, I do think when you look at the prospects for, for uh, real growth going forward and, and the risks uh, that, that will still be present, I do think that the China-U.S. trade war is not going to escalate further, but I actually don't think it's going to de-escalate as well. I think we end up with a sort of Korea solution when we're still at war, but we don't actually fire bullets. So that risk will still be there. And because of those risks, I think neutral policy rates are lower than they otherwise would be. And I do think that, uh, you know, the Fed's going to have to try very hard to kind of convince people, listen, uh, you know, we, we adjusted policy down to reflect risks and uh, actual performance of the economy. And we think we're back at some neutral level now, which we thought we were before, but we were wrong. One of the things that'll be extremely interesting at next week's September FOMC will be, does the longer run dot fall? Right now, it's around 2.5%. Michael, I agree with you that there's kind of this assumption that maybe we need to lower rates to be at neutral. It would follow intuitively that that could drop to 2.25, maybe even 2% in a very aggressive reevaluation. Sure. And if we look at the way that the treasury market has been trading that particular dot, the assumption is that in a world with effectively zero term premium, the longer run dot will function as the upper bound for how far 10 and 30 year yields can sustainably sell off. So that is certainly something that we'll be watching in the week ahead. So much of our base case with regard to the economy continuing to muddle along and avoid getting into a recession driven by the consumer is reliant on the success of global central banks to offset the downturn. And currently, many central banks are so close to the zero bound, have been unable to achieve their inflation mandates even while easing dramatically during the last cycle, it calls into question the efficacy of monetary policy 
at this point in the cycle, at this point in globalization, where disinflation is bleeding into developed economies from these emerging economies. Do we think that the Fed and other large central banks have the tools in their current toolbox to offset any pending downturn, as well as eventually achieve their inflation mandate and be credible about it? And Margaret, I think that's one of the core and most important questions from a macro context, basically of this era. You're starting to see conversations from Fed speakers that low inflation is the challenge of our time. Larry Summers around Jackson Hole came out with a paper that got a lot of attention. It was a little hyperbolic, but his point was we're one recession away from a Japanification or secular stagnation style outcome. And what's really different here is just there's a palpable fear out there that central bankers don't have the ammunition or toolkit in order to credibly achieve their inflation mandate or the way this translates is close the output gap as fast as they otherwise would have historically. You see this get tossed around where, okay, the past few cycles, the Fed cut 500 basis points. This time, at best, they're getting 225. Now we're talking about another quantitative easing. We're talking about more forward guidance. But for context, if you look at the 16th Eurodollar future, so kind of where markets are pricing rates a couple years out, it's already at a record low yield. This is the same yield level that we saw back in 2012 when we were at the zero lower bound with a quantitative easing program and forward guidance. So in some ways, the Fed is already starting to push these boundaries. And the fear then leads into kind of a lower for longer scenario with middling growth and inflation. But it gets even a little bit more ominous than that because if you have this outlook that translates into a negative inflation risk premium or a negative term premium, if you get negative inflation risk premium, that's lower break-evens and inflation compensation, which we see very clearly in both the U.S. and Euro area, as well as higher real rates, all else equal. So how do central banks respond? Well, they lower rates as far as they can. But unless they're able to push up that inflation compensation, this continues to constrain real rates and creates a little bit of a self-affirming dynamic. So this is kind of one of those major stories in the background, but it begs the question of with rates this low, with the ECB cutting, potentially going into another asset purchase program, with the Fed cutting and 50-year low unemployment, why is inflation compensation at 1.2%, 1.3% across developed markets? And there's kind of this recognition, sure, central banks can respond to high inflation. They know how to stop high inflation. Do they know how to spur low but moderate inflation. I'm sure the Fed could get a thousand percent if they want, but no one wants that. It's do they have the ability in low real neutral rates to sustainably achieve a symmetric 2% inflation? I think that's actively in doubt across advanced economies right now. So turning to Europe, in the EU's largest economies, we would say the case for a more expansionary fiscal policy stance is strong, and we expect some movement in this direction over the coming three to six months. But political developments and the unwieldy machinery of the Eurozone governance are likely to restrain the size of the fiscal impulse. So at the same time, a lot of the burden for supporting growth or trying to trigger faster nominal GDP growth in the Eurozone is going to fall squarely on the ECB. There are potential political flashpoints or looming political flashpoints in at least three of the largest EU economies, maybe even four. 
First, starting with Germany. Germany is, of course, because of its dependence on external demand for growth, caught in the middle of the U.S.-China trade impasse. This is happening while divisions in the ruling coalition are occurring and fringe parties are being alienated as well. So effectively, the grand coalition, Merkel's coalition in Germany, continues to, to limp along. The Franco-German compromises, which traditionally underpin the Eurozone, are also going to be tested, in our view, over the next few months. France's Macron is very unpopular at home, and he's going to continue to try to wrestle control of the Eurozone reform agenda away from Angela Merkel and Germany as she loses votes to fringe parties in our own country. The problem with the reform agenda, though, although you could argue it's very necessary for the Eurozone to move on to the next level of integration, there's stiff resistance from it in many northern bloc countries. So this is a key element that is going to be impeding Eurozone reform over the next three to six months, if not longer. Germany and France are also going to face difficulties in forming a unified response to Donald Trump, who is threatening tariffs on EU exports in November. We don't think the tariffs will be imposed in November, but we also don't think the Trump administration will fully remove the threat of them either. Then, of course, you have the situation in Italy. Right now, the establishment or main establishment Democratic Party is in what's likely to be a very messy coalition with its anti-establishment rival, the Five Star Movement. But effectively, what that's done is it's blocked Matteo Salvini from new elections and potentially forming a government. Matteo Salvini is Italy's most popular politician. So we think that the case here for a weak coalition yielding new general elections over the course of the next three to six months is very high. And that is going to be continued to reflect it in Italian credit spreads, that risk, and also to a degree, a weaker euro. And then finally, in Britain, yet another extension of Brexit, in our view, is, is very likely. And we expect our base case, that is, is that a formal request will be made to Brussels uh, at the October 17th, 18th. European Council by the UK government. The consequence of the delay, however, is going to be, in our opinion, early elections, and they probably will occur in November or December of this year. The result of these elections is extremely difficult to call, but both pro-Brexit and pro-EU governments will contain elements that have negative implications for the pound. So we would continue to look to fade instances of pound strength, especially versus the US dollar. There are so many geopolitical risks all over the place that with the base case scenario of trade peace and, and reasonable growth, you, you just have to have asterisks. So with regards to the U.S.-China situation, look, both sides chose to de-escalate. And I would point to the Trump administration pushing back the implementation of tariffs until December that were supposed to be or originally announced as being implemented in September. Good news, but both sides are supposed to be talking in October, and we don't know all the particulars of that. And I would say the chances of that falling through are fairly high. At the end of October, China will be celebrating its 70-year anniversary of the PRC. It's a moment that China wants to show strength and stability. Uh, but when you come out of it, uh, we could be right back to uh, catfight, so to speak, and the situation may just be closer to a, a prisoner's dilemma than any of us would like. And in that case, both sides lash out and hurt each other and thereby hurt themselves. And it's not just U.S.-China. The Hong Kong situation, 
seems to be de-escalating somewhat with the extradition bill having been withdrawn, but it still could uh, find a way to re-escalate and become a problem for global markets. And then lastly, you know, if we didn't have so much to worry about with Brexit and with U.S.-China trade wars, markets would be worried sick over what, what's happening in, in the Straits of Hormuz. There have been multiple flashpoints over the last month where Iran has come close to armed conflict with various others, U.S., U.K., Israel, Saudi Arabia, kind of you name it. And uh, it's just hard to predict how this will evolve. I would say that Iran has been backed into a corner by the U.S. primarily, but at this point, when it's in a corner... It's just going to reach out and scratch anybody who's nearby. And the way that flows through to global markets, it's, it's just impossible to predict. Election season is coming up in Canada as well, and uh, things are not nearly as dysfunctional as in the rest of the world. The official start of the federal campaign has not yet happened, but we do expect it within the coming days. Things have, have tightened up from a race perspective over the past few months. The governing liberals and, and the conservative parties have tightened up in the polls, and things are neck and neck from that perspective. But given the way the, the, the votes are are counted in Canada. Right now, it looks as though the Liberal Party is in the lead from a seat perspective, and they hold the advantage when it comes to to likely forming a government if the polls stay where they are right now. Canada isn't quite like the rest of the world. We haven't seen the political extremes that we've seen elsewhere, where the left has moved further left and the right has moved further right. In Canada, both the Liberals and the Conservatives, which are the two dominating parties right now, are both toward the middle of the political spectrum. And so there isn't a huge difference between the parties, uh, though there are, of course, differences in policies. Neither party has released their platform yet. We do expect those within the coming weeks. But again, we don't expect a huge divergence between the two parties. So while this could have some market impact, we expect it to be relatively muted. Probably the biggest market impact would be if we ended up with a minority government in Canada. The uncertainty around that would probably be a negative, at least from a currency perspective, from a rates perspective. Perspective, there likely won't be much difference between the parties. The Conservative Party, who tends to be more fiscally conservative, has already said they're not going to balance the budget for at least four or five years. And the currently governing Liberal parties have been running a deficit for a number of years now. And so the fiscal dynamics likely aren't expected to change significantly, no matter which party ends up uh, in power. One thing to note, though, is that uh, Bank of Canada Governor Polas's term ends next year. And uh, whoever wins the election uh, will decide who's next in that seat or, or if Governor Polas is offered a second term. So taking all of those flashpoints into consideration, what do we think is next? I think it's pretty clear to say that the September FOMC meeting is going to be a pivotal moment for the Treasury market. My short-term outlook is for a continued backup in rates with an acknowledgement that Powell has a very significant communications challenge in the very near term. Do we test 2% 10-year yields? Probably by the end of the fourth quarter. Do we break 250? Unlikely. Do we end up in the middle of 2020 with a solid one handle on 10s? I suspect so. Then the question becomes, what does the Fed do? What are the risks around going more than an aggregate 75, or could they stop at 50? For all the risks out there, one framework we've leaned on in order to make sense of the world has been 
the Fed's going to execute a mid-cycle stabilization cut, call that 50, 75 in 25 basis point aggregate. Or something really nefarious is going to happen and the Fed's going to cut back down towards zero and we're going to be talking about the modalities of a QE program. All these different risks are potential catalyst points that could push us or help trigger a general contraction back towards zero. But a base case, given the underlying strength of the labor market, given the underlying strength that we're seeing in consumer sentiment, still kind of has to be middle along 75 basis points of cuts. Ian, I think you're spot on with trying to think, okay, does this push tens back above 2%? In my mind, if you get the 75 basis points of cuts, overnight rates are well below 2% with downside risk from there. So I think even if you do see some type of pop in Q4, there's going to be a wall of demand that tries to take advantage of any cheapness. And let us not forget that the Fed has materially lowered their longer-term outlook for policy rates, which implicitly in a world of zero-term premium does put that key cap on how far the market can back up to say nothing about what's going on with the potential for European bond buying, Japan being Japan, and of course the realities of the trade war, which even if we hit a moment of truce, that doesn't mean that we won't find ourselves right back in the same situation at the beginning of 2020. All of this with a backdrop, as you point out, John, that the U.S. economy remains remarkably robust, especially on the consumption side. And when that turn happens, if it does, it tends to occur very quickly. We'll see a series of job losses that result in an undermining of consumer confidence, equity markets fall, and then the Fed is very quickly faced with a significant challenge. And as we talked about earlier, Q4 could very well be the time of this optimism. After all, like we discussed, consumers remain very confident. Equities are pretty much near all-time highs. And household balance sheets are robust. So the Fed's wager that they will be able to avoid a return to the effective lower bound is really based upon the strength of the domestic consumer. And right now, the domestic consumer looks pretty good. One thing that I'd flag in all of this, and the reason why there's such a justified focus on the ECB and Fed, is it's a fine line they have to walk. If they're too optimistic about the state of the economy, if Powell came out and made exactly those points that you just made, Ben, not that they're wrong, equity markets would start tanking and you'd see quickly tightening financial conditions. Instead, they kind of have to thread this needle. On the other hand, if they're too pessimistic about the outlook, it leads to a what does Powell know? Turns out he doesn't really know that much more about the future than anybody else, but it runs the risk of this self-fulfilling recession. And it's especially an awkward moment for the Fed because if you look at a lot of different surveys, look at the ISMs, look at the NFIB small business, look at Beige Book, nobody is citing high interest rates as a binding constraint on growth right now. But the Fed needs to incrementally lower interest rates just to kind of walk the straight and narrow, if you will, in order to pull off this mid-cycle adjustment and extension of the cycle. So the biggest takeaway being the front end of the treasury market will remain reasonably well bid. The cyclical re-steepening of the curve remains in the offing. We do expect a 
bearish episode for the Treasury market into the end of the year, all else being equal, but ultimately see significant buying interest emerging. And we will watch the new seasonals put upward pressure on rates into the end of the year and a reassessment when we have the realities of the economic data as the first and second quarter of 2020 unfold. Said differently, rates are going to go higher and rates are going to go lower, but not necessarily in that order. Ian, you raise a great point that the Treasury market is pricing in this doomsday scenario and the amount of backup that we can see on the flip side is limited by the global backdrop. But one thing that we've seen in the marketplace at the same time is that in high quality spreads, spreads remain near the all-time narrows and are not seemingly pricing in any of this geopolitical risk. Yeah, that's very true, Margaret. It, it, it doesn't feel like spreads make a lot of sense here, given all of the factors that have been talked about so far for the majority of this podcast and spreads in historically low levels. It, it doesn't take all of them going bad. It just takes really one or two that could you know, reprice spreads significantly wider. It just feels like at this point, there's a high degree of uncertainty over whether or not that's going to happen or when it's going to happen more particularly. And in the meantime, supportive technicals continue just to drive extremely narrow spreads. Well, we've got heavy issuance over 500 billion coming over the next three, four months as Treasury rebuilds their cash balances. At the same time, we've got a little bit of an offset coming from the Fed, who's rolling MBS prepays directly into secondary market Treasury purchases, which should keep spreads relatively narrow from a technical perspective. And I think that's the name of the game so far, is, is just technicals. We've talked about in, in many times how heavy Treasury supply has been, but the opposite's been true in spread markets both in the high quality sectors that we cover and in corporate markets, issuance is much lighter this year than participants have gotten used to over the past couple of years. And it's it's actually worth even pointing out that at some point in time, there would be an expectation that, you know, the spread levels just don't make sense. I, I, I should just buy a treasury. But we've actually heard, you know, increasingly often that investors are hitting name limits on treasuries. And there's indigestion on treasury supply just because investors who would typically rather just on a treasury at these current spread levels, have to buy something else because they can't own uh, 100% treasuries. So Dan, you mentioned some indigestion in treasuries. We've had large corporate issuance over the past couple of weeks. Has there been any balking at the current levels in terms of the new issue market? No, actually quite the opposite. So last week we saw $75 billion worth of issuance come in the corporate market. And it was actually quite well received we see a few reasons for that. Demand technicals, in addition to supply technicals, have been very strong for the corporate market. As in economic concerns have grown, we've seen flows out of equity funds and into investment-grade bond funds. Investment-grade bond funds have now seen not a single week of net outflows since January. Appetite for investment-grade debt in the U.S. dollar market has been exacerbated by the recent global yield rally which has pushed the negative yielding stock of global debt to somewhere around $17 trillion now. And then you have the Fed cutting a couple more times this year. So demand for investment-grade debt remains pretty strong. So, Danny, you mentioned some great points. In terms of the trade war funneling into corporate profits as soon as the third quarter, 
will we see the fundamentals start to show up in high quality spread markets in the IG markets, or will this technical backdrop continue to dominate? Yeah, so you bring up a good point, and that's essentially our base case. There's this tug of war between the fundamentals and technicals, and eventually we do think the fundamentals will win out and spreads will move wider in, in light of these deteriorating fundamentals, namely the trade war, other heightened geopolitical risks like Italy and Brexit, which we've talked about. And then seasonals will turn bearish, particularly in the SSA market later this year. The last point I'll highlight is just the tight level of spreads. We think that eventually in the medium and longer term, we think the risk is going to be sort of skewed to wider spreads instead of tighter spreads. It's worth talking about here just the experience of, of year-end 2018, where we saw a big equity market correction and difficult funding conditions in fixed income markets sending corporate spreads as much as 40 basis points wider. It's really not difficult to see a very similar environment developing this time around and potentially with even more drastic impacts on spreads. And I, I just will focus on a few things. I mean, in terms of an equity market correction, I think we've talked about that ad nauseum so far. There's plenty of geopolitical risks facing the market at this point, and all it takes is one of them to worsen most likely the trade war and its impact on corporate profitability that could cause a spike in equity market volatility like Ian talked about earlier. But then we also have the problem of oversupply of collateral heading into year-end that's very likely to result in difficult funding conditions like we saw last year. And last year, we saw LIBOR OAS top out at over 42 basis points, and there's all the reason to think that this time around it could be even worse. Up to this point, we've talked many times about a Fed repo facility and our expectation that they would have one in by the end of the year. It no longer seems like that's going to happen. And without any Fed-driven relief for the oversupply of collateral, it seems like there's going to be a ton of funding needs, and we're going to see market participants earlier and earlier try to lock up funding over the turn. Last year, we saw LIBOR OAS start to move higher in mid to early October. And once we see this year, LIBOR OAS already elevated at 30 basis points. When that three-month window takes you over the turn, beginning in early October, we expect to see LIBOR pressure accelerate. And at that point in time, it wouldn't be surprising to see credit spreads widen, but also swap spreads move a little bit wider as well. If LIBOR OAS widening can outpace widening in repo. And there's every reason to think that will happen. Repo rates are already trading above their highs of 2018. We find a few reasons to think that the repo market might be able to absorb some of the treasury supply that's coming a little better this time around, namely the proliferation of FICC repo, as well as the, just the experience of 2018, where banks now have a better idea from an operational and technical perspective of where they are regarding GSIB ratios. They might be able to be a bit more nimble. So you have kind of these two competing cross-currents of $500 billion plus of treasury supply coming, but also perhaps more readiness in repo markets to handle the year-end that should result in a fairly neutral outlook this year compared to last year in repo, but LIBOR to continue to move significantly wider and drag swap spreads wider. So if swap spreads, which have narrowed basically the entire year, finally do bounce and we see some equity market volatility and pressure on corporate spreads, we could see spreads across the spectrum move wider really for the first time in nine months. So switching over, switching gears to the FX market, we continue to anticipate that the balance of European geopolitical and economic forces will exert major drags on both euro dollar and pound dollar through the end of this year. 
in a very broad sense, these forces stem from political uncertainty, relative weakness in productivity growth, subdued inflation, and of course, limited maneuverability on fiscal policy. In addition, both the UK and the Eurozone are heavily exposed to the US-China trade war due to their elevated shares of total exports in GDP. The likelihood of another Brexit extension is keeping our three-month pound-dollar view just north of 120 at 122, but we see that pair drifting lower again to 120 in six months, and we would caution that both the three-month and the six-month outlooks for that pair are filled with downside risks. And then moving to Eurodollar, another key European pair, we expect that to drift lower to 109 in three months and 108 in six months. That will be driven in part by additional ECB easing, but also the general economic growth backdrop and the potential for Brexit, Italian, German and French political risks, all to create new political flashpoints over the next three to six months, which could have a negative impact on the value of the euro. The rates outlook for Canada hinges on the Bank of Canada and whether or not they will turn more dovish at the end of the day and whether the trade war worsens sufficiently to push them in that direction. The September Bank of Canada meeting was an interesting one. The bank wasn't quite as dovish as the market was looking for. And the bank, while concerned about trade, they put it at the top of their statement, at the bottom of their statement. It is clearly an issue for them. It's clearly a downside risk. It's something they've highlighted in the past. They just weren't as downbeat on the domestic economy as maybe some of the numbers might suggest they should be. They noted that income growth was quite strong in the second quarter, admittedly so. And they also pointed to a very strong labor market. And and that, again, also is the case. But domestic demand in Canada has been quite weak for a number of quarters now. Final domestic demand is up just 0.3% year over year. The last time that happened was 2015. Before that, 2008, 2009. And before that, 1995. And so you're running a pretty soft domestic economy and maybe things will turn. Maybe the, the, the boost in income in the second quarter will spark a little bit more consumption. But we judge that household debt levels are still extremely high, and, and that is going to be a consistent constraint on the economy. And so it is going to be tough to see the, the, the Canadian economy really pick up. And those downside risks that are there for the global economy are also there for Canada. It's likely just a matter of time before the Bank of Canada turns more dovish and cuts rates, maybe not in October, though that that's our current call, but uh, it's looking a little bit iffy at this point. It's still seven weeks away, so there, there's time for things to change. But if they don't go in October, December, January, very possible, and that's especially the case if we see the Fed consistently easing. If we see the Fed ease again in September and then again in October, which is our call, it's going to be very difficult for the Bank of Canada to hold their fire on that front. If Canadian U.S. rate differentials move sufficiently uh, with, with U.S. rates moving down faster than in Canada, the Canadian dollar would then appreciate. That puts more pressure on the Bank of Canada to be that much more dovish. That could eventually lead them to change their tone and eventually possibly cut rates as well. Looking at, at outright rate levels, the August rally in rates was uh, something really extraordinary. We've seen a, a reversal of that to some extent through the first couple of weeks in September amid very strong issuance uh, on, on the corporate side. Provincials have also come to the market and, and there's just been a, a flood of issuance and that's helped back things up a little bit. A little bit more liquidity in the market with fully staffed desks has, have also helped pretty meaningfully here. But something that's really almost Canada specific at this point is, is the shape of the curve. And, and the two tens curve in Canada sitting at negative 20. It's been there for some time now. And it's really difficult to see it steepening materially. It will likely take something along the lines of either an aggressive Bank of Canada 
and aggressive easing from them, which just doesn't look likely at this point. We'll really need to see things deteriorate significantly for that to happen. Or a backup in inflation expectations, which again, that doesn't seem particularly likely either. So if and when the bank does uh, eventually turn more dovish and, and cut rates, I'd expect some steepening in that curve, for example, but don't look for a 50 or 60 basis point move. And we may still stay in negative territory and, and maybe flats the best we're going to get this cycle just because the absolute level of rates is as low as it is. So we've had a remarkable year where Dollar Canada has traded in a narrow 130 to 135 range, even though the fundamentals have moved all over the place. We don't think that range will break in the fourth quarter, even with the election, but would say that if it does break, probably the greater risk is is to the downside, to the side of Canadian dollar strength. And that could come on, on the back of an election surprise where a conservative government comes in and implements more expansionary uh, fiscal policy, such as tax cuts, but it could also come as Liberal Party moves in that general direction as a result of election pressures. Thanks, Greg. While our base case is somewhat optimistic through year-end, we remain on high alert due to the flashpoints discussed today. In summary, our base case is that 10-year U.S. Treasury yields will creep higher into year-end, but this will be met with better buying as investors look forward to 2020, which we suspect will be a much more challenging period for the real economy with new yield lows achieved. Thank you to all of our BMO experts and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 9, The Quarter Ahead, Downside Debate. Please reach out to us with feedback and ideas on topics that you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. 
BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.